0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. Today we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany and some context might be helpful here. In the context, you know, sometimes things are a lot more important than they first appear to be. You know, they're sort of deceptive on the surface, they seem pretty ordinary, but later on you found, wow, this is a lot more than I thought it was. A good example is the world of scholarship is in the ancient world, they used parchment, which was made, uh, uh, you know, made, made with reeds and things. It was a very expensive process to make this. And they used vellum, which is sheepskin. These were really, really expensive. And so what happened would be, it wasn't like paper, which is really cheap. It's not just wood pulp. You, know, you had to actually, it took a lot of processing. And so in the ancient world, you couldn't afford, what do you do when you want a book anymore? You didn't care for what it had or something or, you recycled. How did you recycle? Well, we have a term that's called palimpsest. What that means, Greek, simply means it's scraping off. It means uh, scraping off again, literally in Greek. It means that you would scrape off the letters, like erase them, and write something new on top. There are a lot of these in the ancient world. Why? Because paper was so, rather, you know, writing material was so expensive. But also, especially in the Western, Western Europe where we lived, people forgot Greek. They couldn't read Greek anymore. And so you get somebody a Greek manuscript, and yeah, that's worth a lot. You know, so they would scrape it off and write something, write something else on it on top of it. So a lot of these. Now, one really neat thing about modern scholarship is with technology. If you take infrared light and look at one of these manuscripts, you can read what was already there originally. And wow, can that be incredible. For example, one of the most famous has to do with Archimedes, Archimedes, the great uh, philosopher from Greece. And one of his long lost works, the Greek original, we had some translations, but the longest was long lost. Well, people were the equivalent in the Eastern Church of our hymnals, right? Every church has tons of hymnals or dime a dozen, right? You have hymnals. They had these various prayer books. So somebody thought we need some, some paper, or basically some writing material for prayer books. And they made a prayer book look like pretty much like any other Byzantine prayer book. And then somebody held it up to infrared and guess what they found? It was the lost work of Archimedes. There it was, we knew for a fact what it was because we had a translation of pieces, that was it? So we just thought one of you know a dime a dozen you know, Greek prayer books was suddenly a valuable uh, valuable manuscript. So we found out it was something a whole lot more than we ever thought, and you know the fifth of all, 20% of all the manuscripts of the New Testament are found that way. 20% of them, people just scraped it off because they wanted to use, use the, the material for something else. So, wow, you often find in scholarship, if you're talking about the ancient world, you know, what's underneath is often a whole lot more important than what's on top. Now, wouldn't it be neat if we had a term to describe when you sort of find out something is a lot more? Who could possibly, the Greeks, duh. The Greeks can always come up with terms. So the Greeks came up with a term to define what we would call something becoming manifest, becoming visible that wasn't obvious before and they call that epiphany, epiphany in Greek. It means something, wow, it's there, but I suddenly discover it for the first time. It becomes manifest for the first time. So that's why we call this the feast of the epiphany. So we should ask ourselves two questions for us. Well, if epiphany means something is made manifest, exactly what was made manifest? That would seem to be pretty important. And secondly, what does this have to do with me? Like today in our Gospel, we talk about wise men and things. That's really interesting, but how does that actually affect my Christian walk today? How does that bring me closer to the Lord Jesus? Well, let's look first of all at the Feast of the Epiphany. What's going on is two weeks ago, we celebrated Christmas. And we love those stories from Luke's Gospel. And the people came to worship the baby Jesus. And what did they find? They found a pretty ordinary-looking baby. I'm sure he was very cute. Our mothers think we're all very cute. Okay. Uh, by, by the way, I'll tell you a, a, a priest's secret with baptisms is not all babies are cute. So what happens is when somebody says, isn't that baby a, a cute? And you say, no, that's a baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm sure the Lord Jesus was very cute. Okay, he was theologically cute. Okay, but, but he looked, okay. But he looked basically pretty much like any other baby until somehow people out of nowhere from over a 1,000 miles away show up. And I mean, these are really, these are Persians, and they show up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They have camels and things. Wow, guess what? I guess this isn't an ordinary baby. Wow, this is something a whole lot more than we thought it was. Okay, and so what we have here is So this is where, so what becomes clear, remember how Abraham was told that he, you know, God said, the Jewish people, God's chosen people are not, this is not just a blessing for them, they're going to be his, he will be a blessing to all the nations. All the nations will be blessed through him. So this is where it's revealed that this is the savior, this baby is the savior made manifest to the nations, made manifest, clear. Wow, this is no ordinary baby. This is the one who would be the savior of the nations. You know, when Jesus was baptized at the River Jordan, it was a crowd scene, wasn't it? We're told that thousands of people came out to John to be baptized. It was really the thing. It was the megachurch of its time. Okay, people were really coming out of the woodwork and getting baptized. There were crowds, we're told, coming out to be baptized by, by John. And Jesus is in one of those crowds, and he goes in the water. looks pretty much like anybody else except, whoa, the heavens, it said, are torn open. That's the Greek term they use is in, in, in Mark, is torn open. And the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of the dove and, get this, lands on his head. doesn't hover up in the air. It says, it came to rest upon him. And then a voice said, this is the son I love. I'm pleased in him. Wow, this isn't just anybody else being baptized. So what's happening here? Remember, we've been proud that the nation of Israel was promised a Messiah, an anointed one. Remember, kings received an anointing with oil. And that's what the word Messiah means. Mashiach means you have oil poured on your head, which they did to make you a king or a priest. And so, and that's what the word Christos means in Greek. Christ is the same thing as a translation. Okay, and we're simply saying what happens is that the God the Father himself is anointing Christ as the Messiah. He's pouring the oil of the Holy Spirit upon him. So this is not just somebody coming down to the river, you know, to get baptized. We're saying this is the Messiah made manifest to Israel. It's a whole lot more than it looked like. Finally, third, Jesus goes to a wedding feast at Cana with all his, the, the whole, all his friends are there. You know, his disciples come with him. They're at this wedding feast. And he looks like any other wedding guest. Maybe better behaved, but, you know, he's pretty much like any other wedding guest. But they run out of wine and suddenly he takes what we said about 300 liters of, you know, he turns this water into wine. And this is something really incredible because we were always promised, something you might not realize is that, you know, like we in American society, the tradition used to be that the the groom's family paid for the rehearsal dinner, and the bride's family paid for the stuff that's really expensive, right? You know, paid for the wedding. And so what happens here in the ancient world, guess what the groom's family took care of? The wine. So, Jesus is the bridegroom. His first miracle is not an accident, it's the wedding feast. What is this all about? And John's telling us, you know, the Old Testament said, you know when it's really gonna be perfect? When God, who is the bridegroom, comes to take his bride. That, it doesn't get better than that. The bridegroom will come for his bride. And he's saying, that's what's happening now. The bridegroom has come for his bride. And that's why John tells us, this first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is Christ made manifest to his disciples. So Christ made manifest to the nations, these wise men coming up. You know, Christ made manifest to his people Israel, the Messiah anointed before them. And Christ made manifest to his disciples You know, he provides the wine for the feast because the bridegroom has come. Now, for most of the church's history until living memory, actually for over 1700 years in the Western church, I lived during the change. Now, I'm ancient, but not ancient. It happened in 1955. In 1955, they said, here's the problem, we used to celebrate all three of these on this feast. All three of these were celebrated. But the trouble is the wise men are hard to beat. They really, it's like having an opening act to beat you out. And so they said, you know, it's really important not to miss the Lord's baptism. So we ended up pulling that out and putting it the next week as the baptism of the Lord so it wouldn't be lost in the shelf. So basically, epiphany for us lasts a whole week. We start now, and we finish next week. You say, what happened to the wine, the Cana? Well, we actually read that tonight. If We, we have these offices, a morning prayer and evening prayer. If you look at evening prayer tonight, guess what? We read Cana in Galilee. So those were the three. Now, we've decided in recent years that we're gonna focus on this Sunday on the wise men. So why don't we focus on them today? And specifically, um, what are some of the lessons we can draw? Why do we care other than historical interest? You know, we're told Paul says, you know, everything was written for scripture for our benefit. It all means something. So what does it mean to us? Well, in your bulletin, you'll find three really cheesy icons. I chose them. Okay, they're not quite in order. Okay, uh, no, no disrespect to people from Wisconsin. Okay, uh, they are cheesy. Okay, so we have, first of all, globe. You see the globe. And the second one, if I have them in the, in the order, it's my fault. The order I'd like to have them, first the globe, then the man on a journey. See the man on a stick on a journey. And then the third one is the three wise men holding their gifts. Those are going to be the three lessons we have to learn. So let's look at them. Let's start out, first of all, what's the thing with the globe? And here's the lesson. God is at work in places we never imagined. Has it occurred to you, how in the world did they know about this? You know, I don't think this is a talking star. You know, I don't think the star said, hey, down there, King of the Jews, born out there west, you know, film at 11. No, I don't think that's what happened. Basically, somehow God let them know even though they weren't part of God's chosen people, God is still at work. All of us are His children, and the profound that we have our gift from God, we are creating the image of God. God, we see throughout the Old Testament, is talking to other people besides Israel. He has a special relationship with Israel. But He talks to others. So somehow, God had reached out in the least likely place, we think, in Persia to some professional astrologers. <laughs> you, know, they, you know, astronomers, what have you. but. How did they know it had anything to do with the king of the Jews? God must have told them. There was no way to figure that out. And so, why we have that globe is God is still at work invisibly preparing people to receive the gospel. You see, we sometimes, we go out there, we don't realize by the time a person comes to the Lord Jesus, God has already been long at work in them. You see, every conversion as a matter of theology is a miracle. No one can talk themselves into saving faith. It's a direct gift of God. We call it conviction, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't pay any attention to us. John says he blows wherever he wills. He's the wind. And so the Holy Spirit is working in places we would never have imagined. Jesus talks about this in Luke's Gospel when he talks about the sign of Jonah. Now, sometimes we mess that up because Luke's Gospel is the best version, I think, uh, to make it clear that we sometimes, like it says, well, Jesus was three days and three nights in the whale. That's true, but Luke doesn't mention that. He says, the sign of Jonah he mentions Nineveh. So what's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah, let me explain something about the world where people believe a lot of gods in the ancient world. Well, gods are sort of like sports teams. Some are a whole lot better than others. And so the real winners here were the Assyrians. They were on top of the, you know, their god always won in battles and things. They were, this was the winner god. Okay, this is the one, you know, this is, this is the championship team. Now, to say nothing in human terms, Israel was nothing to write home about. Actually, the Assyrians had conquered the northern half of it. Okay, and the the southern half was endangered. Why in the world, this guy comes from Judea and starts in this great, powerful city, starts saying, you know, my God is going to destroy this city unless you repent. Why in the world would anyone listen to this? Because God was at work. That's what Jesus says this miracle is. Why did they listen? It's saying, because God's at work. He said, that's you know, the, the, sign of, the sign of Jonah, that somehow we'll see that God is opening hearts, even though there's no other reason. I just know this is true. Something's touching my heart. I know this is true. And Jesus said the same thing is going to be the sign of no, Jonah for, for, for us, he says, in our generation, is when Jesus came to his own people, many didn't accept him. Some certainly did, but many didn't accept him. But why in the world would Romans and Greeks, who were really proud in the sense of really conceited about themselves, they were really full of themselves, the Romans and the Greeks, compared to, they looked down on people from the Middle East. And why in the world would they listen to this? And he said, look, it's going to be a miracle. They're going to listen massively. He said, it's going to be like, no, no, these people out of nowhere are going to some." Why would they listen? Because of the Holy Spirit's already been at work. That's what happens. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus tells us, He says, you know, we often think about church planting, and that's, I love the term, don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful thing, but he's saying, actually, if we look upon it, he said, don't say that there are, do you not say that there are four months until the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. The fields are already ripe with the harvest. They're white with the harvest. God has already done the sowing. We're going for the reaping. Okay, by the way, if you don't know something in the ancient world too, seed time was not fun. Planting was not rewarding. You didn't know whether it would be a successful crop. It was a lot of hard work. Harvest is always fun. I go to places like France I think with the, the, when, uh, what do you call it? Whenever we bring in the grapes. Um, uh, In any event, when you do that, that's a real holiday. Everybody comes and they celebrate. It's fun. And he says, you're here for the good part. God has done. People have gone before you. You're here to harvest, not to plant. You're here to harvest. God is at work. So, Another way Paul tells us about this in the epistles, he basically gives this argument that can help us as well. And then I'll tell you how this all comes down to us. Paul says, you know, I want you to think about something. Paul was not a physically imposing person. So in a room like this, someone with Father Brett, uh, you know, as tall as he is and things, you can't miss if he's in the room. You're going to see Father Brett. He stands, Or our bishop, our beloved bishop. He, something, something about him you know if he's in the room. You don't have to, oh, gee, I wonder if the bishop is here. That's not hard to figure out because there's something about him that really is an impressive presence. Okay, Paul is anything but that. Paul was, was created for a crowd scene. Cecil B. DeMille would say, this is my man. <laughs> I need another 10,000 like this. No one. Paul was not impressive. He also was a terrible speaker. And he was not false humility. He was a terrible speaker. Matter of fact, I love this in 1 Corinthians. They find out he's going to have to miss, so to speak, a, su- a Sunday preaching, and everyone's delighted. They're going to have a... <laughs> Apollos is going to come. That works. <laughs> Don't hurry back. Okay, so, so he was a B-string preacher. Okay. He didn't use... Now, the Greeks had these fabulous arguments they would use. Fabulous arguments. And Paul said, I didn't come with any arguments. Matter of fact, I came with a really crazy story. I came to you and told you, you got to believe me on this. There's this guy who walked out of a tomb. No, really, he's alive. I met him and he walked out of a tomb and he can do this for you. Why would anyone believe that? That's quite about preaching the cross because the Holy Spirit told them this is true. It's still that way today, That's, that's conviction. So, what is our lesson? You know, first of all, Paul said, Preach the gospel to Timothy, he said, in season or out of season. Sometimes we say we want low-hanging fruit. Now imagine in Jesus' time. i bet had people trying to give Jesus professional advice on how he could sort of boast his ministry. Say, Jesus, you're hanging out with the wrong people. Go to the religious people. They're all really set for this. They're going to hear the message. Go to the Pharisees and the scribes. Those people are really into the religion thing. That's where to make converts. Where did Jesus make his converts? The last people we'd expect. All the people on the margins. The ones who were written off. Those were the ones... So we don't know where God's been working. And it's often places we never suspect. So basically he's saying, don't try to aim, remember the sower, he sows the seed. He doesn't try to aim for the good ground because we don't know where the good ground is. God does, we just throw it everywhere. So don't write people off and saying they never, we don't know where God's been working. We don't know. And also a beautiful thing is we can be overwhelmed when he says make disciples of all nations. We are saying, especially now in a secular age, how are we ever gonna do that? Well, we're not, God's doing it. We just reap the harvest. We're out there to bring in the harvest. This encourages us that it's not a matter of how well we persuade people or something. God's already doing the heavy lifting. Just go out, this is the fun time. Go out for the harvest and let's rejoice. Now, the second thing we have is a man on a journey. And what's our moral here, our lesson? Don't stop, start now and don't stop till you get there. Start now and don't stop till you get there. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, notice something about the, about the uh, wise men here. They get the star and they get the message that, you know, the, the king of the Jews, the incredible king of the Jews has been born. A lot of people would say, that is really interesting. Wow, that's interesting. Unless that's a good dinner conversation, maybe put on my blog post. I guess that's anachronistic. But in any event, it's something to chat about. That's an interesting fact. They took action. They say, we need to go and worship him. That means moving. They're going to do something. They aren't just sitting saying, oh, that's interesting. That's really neat. They are acting upon it. They immediately get up and they go to do something in response, which is to go and worship. And this is a journey. The journey of faith is, a matter of fact, in the Old Testament we describe walk being a Jew is described as walking. It's, you know, we walk with God. Enoch is the one who walked with God. You know, we talk about people walking. I mean, it's a walk. We talk about the way, the way, the road. The Christians called Jesus said, I am the way, meaning I'm the road. Uh, you know, we the early Christians called Christianity the way. So Christianity isn't about sitting down, it's about walking. It's about a walking stick, not a chair. Okay. So they go here, so they're determined to to go up and they, they move. So what's the second step on their journey? Is they need more information. They know he's been born. And only later we'd hear about star actually leading them somewhere, comes later in the story. But they know, wait a second, the king of the Jews, well, we know where Judea is, and we know the capital of Jesus, is at Jerusalem. Well, why don't we go and ask? You know, so they show up in Jerusalem, say, okay, where is he? Can you tell us where he is? So they go for people who should have more information, and they do, guess where they look for more information? The scriptures. They say, well, the scriptures say, here's, what, here's where to go. And what do they do with that? They get up and they actually uh, take, they, they follow that. They actually get up and follow the scriptures. They, they examine the scriptures and that's how they stay on course. If they had to check the scriptures, they could just be wandering around. Because again, they're asking where he is. And then we said the, the star is going, to, is going to actually lead them to the actual physical place. So they go, down to Jeru- they go down to Bethlehem. Now notice something. All those people in Jerusalem didn't do that, did they? There are a lot of people reading the scriptures who thought this is fun. This is good, reading the scriptures, is a good holy thing. But when they hear what the scriptures tell them, your king of the Jews is born, that's fine. Why don't you go tell us about it? They don't even move. You go tell us about it. That sounds interesting. They are not satisfied until they meet Jesus for themselves. They're not trying to blend into a crowd scene of believers. They're saying, I'm not going to be satisfied until I see him with my own eyes. So they go all the way until they actually meet Jesus. Jesus. Okay, that's, so our journey will not end until we see, as in, our, in our Eucharistic prayer we say, until we see the Lord face to face. So when we first accept the Lord Jesus in our lives. That's when we get up and start walking. Matter of fact, you notice how often it says, you know, rise, take up your pallet and walk. You know, he's always getting people up and moving. The first thing we hear good news is, let's move. And then we find more information. We search the scriptures and we don't say, hey, that's interesting. Every time the scriptures tell us directions, we, we, you, people just want to talk about the scriptures, leave them behind, just keep moving and following the scriptures. Don't stop until you meet Jesus. Well, the third thing is practical advice is to the wise men bearing gifts is our third icon, and that is don't show up empty-handed. You don't come to a baby shower without gifts. Now, let me tell you here, This is so important that it's repeated in the law of Moses three separate times. Let me quote the verses to you. None shall appear before me empty-handed. saying people come to worship God, none shall appear before me empty-handed, Exodus 23. In case we missed it, Exodus 34 comes back and says, none shall appear before me empty-handed. Deuteronomy says, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. There's a message here. When we come to the Lord, we, so we, we don't come empty-handed. So what did the wise men bring with to worship the baby Jesus? They brought three things, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, what is gold? Well, gold's the easy one. In the ancient world, it was, most things were empires. And what happened is you have your basic state, the people on top of everything, and other people pay tribute. They pay basically a tax to be left alone protection money, although it sounds better if we call it tribute. They paid protection money, okay, and they've paid it, normally it was measured out in gold was the standard unit of measure. Okay, so they measured out in gold. So gold is what you pay to acknowledge that, yes, you're my king. I owe you money just because you are. They didn't provide public services, it wasn't like our taxes, it was just because I'm important, you're not pay. (laughs) Okay, so it's basically, that's how you acknowledged, you know, king, so this is how you acknowledged a king frankincense is something you used in a temple. It's something you used in worship. There are all sorts of incense to make things like air freshener in the ancient world, but frankincense is used for religious purposes. It's something you use for religious worship. And the third thing is myrrh, which is the most unusual baby gift. Matter of fact, I've got to tell you, here's a life hack. You do not want to bring this to a baby shower. Myrrh is actually a burial spice. And what that means in real terms, it's a desiccant is when bodies, you know, the trouble what makes them smell is they get all sort of watery and, you know, uh, slippery, and so you put this on the body all over and it takes all that stuff up so it doesn't decompose, you know, it slows decomposition. So that's the whole purpose of myrrh is you put it on things so it stops bodies from smelling for a while as you get them in the grave. Okay, so that's, so it's not exactly the perfect baby gift. Now, so we have gold, frankincense, now why? We know that, okay, so gold, frankincense, and myrrh, why would they bring these gifts? Well, gold is obvious they're saying the one who's been born is the king. Not just a great prophet, a great he is the king. And a king was a big deal in the ancient world. He was really the boss. The second thing, frankincense, he is divine. Okay, we get that. He's godlike, he's a god. But more than that, why myrrh? Well, think about it. Why did Jesus become human? We talked about this on Christmas. He came to die on the cross. He came to die. God didn't have to become incarnate in order to chat with us. He did just fine in the Old Testament Scriptures communicating. He became a physical human being so he could die on the cross for our salvation, to take up his cross. So gold, you know, we, we acknowledge he's truly the king. Franken says he's truly God in myrrh. He truly came to die for us. Now, what do we bring? I have good news, we have a list of gifts. First of all, we're told in the scriptures, Paul says, you know, we should offer ourselves, our souls and bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So we bring ourselves as the gift, but what does that look like to bring ourselves? What does that mean? Well, we have the same three gifts. To offer ourselves means gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How so? In gold, we really recognize Jesus as Lord of our life. Now, a lot of us saying Jesus is king, that's so easy. Yeah, sure, of course. No, he is not Charles III. You see, if we have uh, Canadians here, you know, Americans don't, is that being a commonwealth country, Elizabeth II was, Elizabeth was also the queen of Canada. She wasn't, you know, she's separately the queen of Canada. And so now Charles is now the, the king of Canada. And what does that mean? Well, he has his picture in every post office, in every public building. You don't have to ask what it looks like. It's a picture there. Enjoy it. That's it. The king, a, a constitutional monarch, he reigns. He doesn't rule. He's someone we honor. He's symbolic, but he doesn't get involved in our lives. He has nothing to say about what we actually do. We decide that in Parliament. You know, all he does is sits on top and looks, looks, looks official. Some of us do that with the Lord Jesus, to some extent. We say, oh, of course he's our king. We put up his picture in our wall, we put a cross up on our wall or something, but there are whole areas of our life that are not subject to the Lordship of Jesus. Maybe our social media, certain relationships we have, certain parts of our lives, our work, there are certain parts of our life that it's like Jesus has never been there. He's certainly not ruling. So the first thing we bring is to truly take Jesus as the Lord of our life. That means everything. There are no spaces apart from Jesus. So that's king. He is not a constitutional monarch. He's an absolute king. The second thing is frankincense. The thing about God that we always have in the Old Testament, what do people always worry about? When you come near God, maybe I'm gonna die. It's really scary to be around God because God is holy. And there's no trouble if you're holy. God will give us holy. He will cleanse. But if you're not holy, it's like going, going next to a campfire wearing paper clothes. You know, it's a disaster waiting to happen. You can't sin is like having oil on your clothes and things and getting close to a campfire. Take it from someone who knows, in this sense, that uh, one of the many summer jobs I had doer jobs is I was a painter. And these are the old days when you had oil paint and, uh, rather, I had lead paint and stuff, oil paints and things. And the only way to get that stuff out of you had to almost bathe, it seemed, in, in uh, uh, turpentine. And, and so this stuff is highly flammable. And so you realize you had special painting clothes that you never wear anywhere else, especially when you, you, wouldn't take, you wouldn't go to a campfire that night with those kind of clothes on. So we're told that we have to be sanctified. We have to become holy to approach the living God. We can't, our, our sin can't come with us. We have to check that at the door, our sin at the door. How does that happen? In my favorite verse in all of Scripture is 2 Corinthians 3.18, where it says, as we look at His image, looking at God, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory. That's called holiness, sanctification to another. We allow God to make us holy so we can approach Him. Well, what about myrrh? Well, some of us are satisfied of saying, you know, we, we like to admire Jesus. It's pretty easy to do, isn't it? That is really neat what you did. I am really grateful you died from we should be." But Jesus says, "I'm not looking for admirers, I'm looking for followers." He says specifically, he says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he says in Luke, he says it actually all three synoptics, but in Luke he uses the word daily. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he has to take up his cross daily and follow me. Christ came to die. We also have to die to sin. That's real death. We have to take up the real cross with Jesus. That's, we're called to that. So what do we do? What does it mean to offer the right gifts to God? Does it mean we really accept Jesus as our king? in the sense of not really the ruling monarch. There is no part of our life that we have set off limits to the rule of Jesus. Secondly, with frankincense, that we are constantly looking at God and becoming transformed, becoming more like him. You know, that's holiness that allows us to approach him. And third, we've come, we're coming to report to work. We're picking up our cross. We're dying to self. We're taking it's the way of the cross as the way of life. Okay. So our conclusion, then, is I've got really good news for everyone. You know, I love the fact that we have the stars up here now because basically the stars were over the altar, and just as the stars led them to the place where the child was, I want you to remember that as you come up for Holy Communion. You're going to have something better than the wise men found. You're going to meet the living Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrament. He says, you know, Paul says it's a participation in his body and blood. We're going to meet, actually meet, the Lord Jesus here. So what do, as we come to Him, what we want to do is simply say, Lord, is we want to bring gifts. And that, the gift is ourselves. but how do we know we're really giving ourselves? Is, Lord, I really want you to every corner. I don't want any corner of my life apart from you. I want you everywhere, every relationship, my social media, my recreation, my friends, everything, my work. I want you to just permeate my life. I want us to share a life. Secondly, Lord, I just want to be more like you. I want to keep being transformed into your image, more like Jesus by your transformation. And third, Lord, I know I'm called to take up the cross and I'm not going to whine about it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to say, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to take up my cross and follow you. And I'm not putting it down until I see you face to face. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation.